Welcome to The Joe Show, a podcast that has real conversations with real people about topics that really matter to you. And now your podcast host, Joe Amaral. Today I want to talk to you about Pentecost. Not Pentecostalism, that's, that, that's different. But I want to talk about the event that now we know to be Pentecost. What does it mean for us living in this present day? With everything going on in the world, how can it or does it still speak to us today? Uh, what did it mean for those living at the time of Jesus, for those living around the time of the Second Temple? What was that all about? What did it mean to them? Why was it so important or was it important? We're going to talk about that. And what meaning did it have, if any, for the nation and people of Israel? These are three things that we're going to look at. Well, let's bring it back to our time today. Uh, what would you say if I was to ask you, you know, describe it? You know, Pentecost, what is it? Is, a, is it an experience? Is it, a, is it just another day on the calendar? What is it and what relevance does it have for us living today with everything going on in the world? What in the world does it have to say to us today? So how would you describe then this, this Pentecost? Is it just a, you know, a sign that's on the front of your church? Is it you know, some kind of a denominational designation? Well, today I'd like to take us back more than 3,000 years in time. And today I want to show you something really cool from Scripture, and it's this. That the message of Pentecost isn't just interdenominational, but it's actually pre-denominational. So when I mention Pentecost, most people automatically go to the events recorded in Acts chapter 2. And we kind of can't help that, especially for those of us who identify as Pentecostals. Acts 2, boom, like that's our jam. That's where, that's where we go. So what are some of the, uh, the common elements that are associated with that Pentecost that we read about in Acts 2? Well, I think for sure we would say, oh, there was fire. I know that. And then some might get even more specific and said, well, it actually says there were tongues of fire. Okay, what else? Something about a sound like, like, like a mighty rushing wind. Yeah, yeah, that's there. There was definitely speaking in other tongues. That we're sure of, right? Okay. Uh, and then we know that there are foreigners in the crowd. That's what it says in Acts. And they hear the message that Peter is preaching. They all hear it in their own language. So that's definitely a part of Acts chapter 2. Then also we hear that 3,000 people believed and accepted the message that day. So these are some of the elements, and I want you to remember those as we go through the message. Now, a lot of scholars will point to this as the, uh, the birth of the church, and that's, that's probably true. And a lot of Christians believe that we actually get the name Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. A lot of times in the church, when we have names and we have descriptions and we have activities, a lot of times we kind of think that we made them up. We think that we have the claim to them. But the truth is in that in most cases, if not all cases, what we do is predicated on something that was already done in the Old Testament. Because remember, we're the ones who have been grafted in, where? To the tree of Israel. So we're, if we're grafted into the right root, then we get the right fruit. Now I'm going to kind of freak you out a little bit. What if I told you that Acts... Chapter 2 wasn't the first time um, that Pentecost had been celebrated or even mentioned. What would you say to that? And what if I told you that it had been celebrated by the Jewish people 
for over 1,500 years by the time the events in Acts chapter 2 took place. In fact, Orthodox Judaism claims this, that the first Pentecost in history was actually celebrated by the Jewish people at Mount Sinai right after the Exodus. Now I'm going to continue to stretch you a little bit more. Are you ready? Not only am I going to tell you that the first Pentecost was celebrated by the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, but that the events that took place in Acts chapter 2, all that stuff we talked about, were actually present at the very first Pentecost as well at Mount Sinai. Now, I'm freaking some of you out right now. Do me a favor, don't pause or stop the message. Just kind of bear with me. Let me take you on a historical journey that will absolutely blow your mind. So let's go back. We need to go back to the first time that Pentecost is referred to in, in the scriptures. So if it's not in Acts chapter 2, where is it? Where do we find it? I think you'll be surprised to know that it's found in the book of Leviticus. I know. Oh, Joe, don't say Leviticus. It's such a hard book to read and understand. And some of us who follow these daily Bible passage readings are like Leviticus. Oh, I'll probably be okay. I'll just skip to Corinthians or something, right? It's one of those tough books to read, but Leviticus does have so much to present to us. And once we understand Pentecost and its place in the seven feasts of the Lord, Leviticus takes on a whole new meaning. So let me share with you where you find uh, Pentecost for the first time. Now, of course, it's not called Pentecost in the Old Testament, but it is there. Let me show you. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff in there that you're like, well, what's going on? I mean, there's math going on here. I want you to count for seven weeks, seven days, but then on the 50th day, I want you to do this, and then I want you to wave something. What in the world is going on? Now, the wave offering that's being referred to here in Leviticus 23, 15, and 16 is to a feast just before it, known as the, the Feast of First Fruits. And on that day, you're to wave first fruits before the Lord. So Leviticus is saying, once you present those first fruits, you wave them, then you start counting the seven weeks of seven. And on the 50th day, go ahead and celebrate Pentecost. So here's the instruction. Count seven weeks and then celebrate Pentecost. So how does that work? Now, I'm not great at math, but I know there's seven days in a week and there's seven weeks. So seven times seven is 49. So it says on the day after that, start celebrating the Feast of Weeks or what we call Pentecost, day 50. Now, why do we even call it Pentecost in English today? Well, because of the root word there, penta, and penta means five. And we can find this in, in everyday applications, uh, something like a, like a pentagram, which is a five-sided star. We have the Pentagon, which is a, a five-sided military base in, in America. And of course, the Pentateuch in Greek. We have the first five books of the Bible. So the Bible calls it the Feast of Weeks because you're counting for seven weeks. It actually does, does make sense. So let's go back then. So now we found out when it's first mentioned in Leviticus 23. And so Orthodox Judaism tells us that the first Pentecost, or the first uh, Shavuot, as it's known in Hebrew, takes place at Mount Sinai. 
And the rabbis, this is what they teach, that at that very first Pentecost, the nation of Israel was born. You know, before that, they were kind of all over the place, and Moses was doing his best to guide them, but didn't have the laws of God yet. They had grown up in Egypt and only knew their gods. And so when they came together and God gave them his commandments, then they kind of fell into order, and they would say that the nation of Israel was born. And some extraordinary events take place at this first Pentecost. And while I'm talking about this, I want you to keep Acts chapter 2 in the back of your mind. Don't leave me here, but kind of keep Acts chapter 2 in the back of your mind and start listening for parallels because they're going to become obvious. And one of the first things that happens at this first Pentecost, it's so heartbreaking, but the nation of Israel, the people were breaking the commandments even before they knew what they were. Moses was up in the mountain being face-to-face with God, collecting the commandments for the people, and he hasn't even brought it to them, and they're already breaking the commandments. And this is what happens while Moses is away. Uh, Because when Moses comes back down and he confronts Aaron, Aaron does not want to have anything to do with what's going on. He does not want to be blamed. He doesn't want anything to fall on him. And so he begins to excuse himself. Aaron is excusing himself from the situation. It wasn't me. It was them. I tried, Moses. I swear. You told me to watch them, and I did. But he plays the greatest pass-the-blame game ever. And he literally, well, I'll read it, and then I'll paraphrase it. When he's asked about, um, you know, what, what happened with the forging of this golden calf, with this idol and worshiping it, what happened? So Exodus 32, 24. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and listen to this, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this cow. Out came this calf. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, Moses, I swear, I don't know what happened. We threw gold into the fire, and out came a cow. It's the first time holy cow is ever used in, in the Bible. And so he's trying to pass the buck. He's trying to shift the blame from himself to the people. But that's not what we have recorded in the scriptures. Now remember, this is the first Pentecost. Exodus 32 verse 1 kind of starts this whole journey of breaking the commandments before they even see them or receive them. This is what it said. That when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Make us gods who shall go before us. Okay, let's pause there. Aaron's right. It was the people's idea. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. Because then they say, As for this Moses. Okay, pause. This Moses? Some of the versions say, As for this fellow Moses. What do you mean, this fellow Moses? This is the guy who just led you out of Egypt. Remember? The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the, all that stuff. And now he's, just, he's been reduced to this fellow. It's unbelievable how quickly they, they turn on him. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him. You know, we don't know where he is. Okay, he did a good job. He did the Pharaoh thing. He did the plague thing. He did the Red Sea thing. But where is he now? Well, we need him. Where, where is he now? And they are also starting to play, to play this, this blame game. And so the story continues in Exodus 32, 4. And this is Aaron just kind of explaining himself to Moses. And so he receives the gold from their hand and he what? 
he fashioned it. Hang on a second. I thought it was the people's idea and Aaron had nothing to do with it. That's not what it says. So he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made what? A golden calf. And then this is what the people said when they saw the finished product. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Are you kidding me? After all God had done, after everything that they had been through, they were so quick to turn to this golden calf. Why a golden calf? Why not turn to another leader, another man, and say, listen, Moses is gone. Okay, buddy, you're up. You're next in line. No, they, they turn to a golden calf. So, so what is it about that? I did a little bit of research on the golden calf. And in, in that time when Israel was still Canaan and the people had come out of the land of Egypt, the golden calf was actually worshipped back in the land of Egypt. And here's just a, a quick image that you find on the inside of tombs in ancient Egypt. And so you can see that the people were familiar with this kind of worship, even all the way back in, in Egypt. And so Moses was, was gone for like 40 days and they were, they, were, they were freed slaves for less than 60 days. And they were so quick to revert back to their old ways. Have you ever met someone like that who, who's gone through something? They, they were, uh, they had an addiction. They had something that they were just in bondage to. And as soon as they break free from it, something happens. And what do they do? They revert right back to it. No wonder it's said in Proverbs 26, 11, that as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. So it's amazing how the people were breaking the commandments even before they knew that they had come into existence. I mean, it blows my mind. And the command they're breaking was one of the first that God gave in Exodus chapter 20, verses four and five. You shall not make for yourself an image. And it goes on in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth. And it goes on. So you shall not. And the first thing they do is they don't just make any image, but they go after this, this calf, after this bull God. And there was a bull God in Egypt and he was the God of two things. And I want you to see how much of a slap in the face of God this was when the people made the image. And here's this bull God. And these were all over Egypt and Canaan and uh, the Baal worship and all that kind of stuff at that time. They would worship this God because he was the God of strength and fertility. And when they made this golden calf, this, this God, it was in direct opposition to what God said he would do for the people. He had made promises that he said he was going to do, but because he didn't do it in their time, they turned to someone else. Now, don't get so mad at them. We do that too. We have a promise from God, but other, rather than waiting, we want to go off and do our own thing because we want it and we want it now. And so God is the one who said that he would be their strength, not this bull God. I wonder if that's where we get the term, that's bull. Anyways, so they turned to this bull God, but God said, I'm the one that's going to be your strength. You don't need to make an image to remind you of something that's going to be your strength. God said, I'm going to be that. And he said that in Exodus 6, 1, right before the, uh, the calling out of Egypt took place. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. People didn't need to go to an idol 
to a cow, to a bull, to an image. God had already demonstrated his power, but because it didn't work out in the timing they wanted, they turned so quickly. And then the second part of this golden calf, it was the God of strength, but it was also the God of fertility. But God said he would be the one that would multiply them. They didn't have to sacrifice to some idol. But again, it didn't happen in the time they wanted, and so they jumped the gun. Because in Genesis 22:17, God already made this promise. He said, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And so God makes a promise. He makes a covenant. He says he will do something and the people can't wait. And we're still doing that today in our present time. God has spoken something to us. He's made us a promise. And it doesn't happen exactly when we want or maybe even how we want. What do we do? We turn and we look to other ways. And so Israel reverted to their old ways. Why? Because it's easy to revert to what is familiar. It's called the danger of reversion. And we all have this tendency to revert to familiar behavioral patterns. And they're called coping mechanisms. We all do it. And we see that the nation of Israel also had a coping mechanism. And it was turning to other gods. It was being impatient and going their own way. You see, for four, well, for over 400 years, they had been abused and mistreated. And that abuse and that mistreatment and that slavery, that became a part of who they were. It, it became a part of their identity. They actually forgot what it was like to be normal. And sometimes, even for us, we've been abused, we've been misused, we've been mistreated, spoken badly of. Things have happened to us, and we've harbored hate and anger and resentment and bitterness, and we don't notice. But what happens over time is those things become part of our personality. And after a while, we don't know where they begin and, and we end. That's why it's so hard to get rid of it sometimes. It's so hard to give it away because we've become so used to it being a part of our lives. And this is what we see happening. And so they defaulted to their old ways and they went after false gods. And in this case, it was the golden calf. Remember I told you to keep Acts chapter 2 in your mind? Because look at what happens. Because they defied God and because they disobeyed God, that action of them reverting back to their old ways, it led to the death of 3,000 people. Exodus chapter 32 verse 28 records it. And it says that the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. So there's that number 3,000 kind of hovering there. And I told you that we would start to see some symbolism. We start to see some similarities between the first Pentecost at Sinai and the Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. So let's, let's get to it. Now, something that's really interesting that I, know I personally missed for a long time. I, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a better scholar than I am. But I miss this. I, I've read the story of the Exodus, I don't know how many times. Uh, like you, I watched the Ten Commandments on TV as a kid growing up. But there's this, there's this verse that I missed. And maybe I didn't think it had any relevance to the story, but it does. It's in Exodus 12, 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Hang on a second. I want to read that again. Exodus 12, 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. I didn't know that. What do you mean a mixed multitude? Well, Egypt 
was a huge empire. It had conquered a lot of the then known world. They enslaved people from all over Africa and the Middle East. And the Bible says that these people, they were part of the Exodus. I thought it was just the Jewish people. I thought it was just the Hebrews. But yet Exodus tells us, no, there was a mixed multitude. And with that mix comes, you know, people with their own culture, their own religions, and their own languages. We're going to start to see similarities now between this first Pentecost and the Pentecost we know about in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to be quoting a lot from some books that you, you may not be familiar with, uh, with the Midrash, with uh, the Talmud, with the Mishnah. The, these are Jewish uh, literature, uh, books of Jewish literature, and they're collections of, of sayings and interpretations and traditions of the Jewish people and by the, uh, some of the most famous and well-known rabbis. Now, as I begin to quote these rabbis who lived hundreds of years ago, and some of them even over a thousand years ago, I want you to remember, I'm not talking about born again, you know, New Testament, Holy Spirit, you know, filled commentators. We're talking about Orthodox Jewish rabbis and sages from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And this is their thoughts and their comments as they look back on the scriptures and the story of the great Exodus. In, in the Midrash, in one of the passages called Shemot Rabbah 5.9, you can see it on the screen here. All at Mount Sinai, young and old, children and infants, heard the voice of God according to their ability to understand. Why would that rabbi say that? Why was it necessary to kind of put it in there that everybody, no matter where they were from, understood the commands? Well, because we just read that a mixed multitude also went up with them. And then another Midrash says this, and this is really interesting, from the same uh, section, Rabbah 5.9. Rabbi Yohanan, which was a very famous rabbi, says this, that when God's voice, now you're listening, when God's voice came forth at Mount Sinai, it divided itself into 70 human languages so that the whole world might understand it. Whoa, whoa, hang, hang on a second. Now, I know you can hear me. I can't hear you, but there better be a wow in there somewhere. You hear what this rabbi is saying in the Midrash? In a book written hundreds and hundreds of years ago by an Orthodox rabbi, he said that when God spoke, the people saw, first of all, the words of God come and they divided themselves into 70 different human languages so that the whole world might understand it. That is huge. That is a big wow. Let me give you one more, again from the Midrash. Rabbi uh, Moshe Weissman says this, and I want you just to think about it. This is a rabbi. This is a man reflecting on the Exodus. This is a man reflecting on the first Pentecost when God gave his people the Ten Commandments. This is what he says about the event. He says that on the occasion of the giving of the Torah, the children of Israel not only heard the Lord's voice, but actually saw the sound waves as they emerged from the Lord's mouth. Now check this out. They visualized what? The words of God as a fiery substance. And each commandment that left the Lord's mouth traveled around the entire camp and they came back to everyone individually. Holy smokes, I'm sorry, but I had to say it. 
So first, the one rabbi says that when God spoke, everybody understood it, no matter what age or language background you had. And then another rabbi says that there was 70 different languages spoken, different tongues were spoken at the very first Pentecost. And now this rabbi says that not only did they just hear the voice of God, but they saw the voice of God in tongues of fire. And as the fire spoke to them, they understood the commandments of God. Oh my goodness. Now remember when I told you to keep Acts chapter 2 in the background? Are you starting to see the similarities? Are you starting to understand why I told you to remember it? There's more. There's more. It keeps going. It's unbelievable. Exodus 19.19 is, is, is God speaking to Moses. And the Hebrew words that are selected are very, very interesting. Exodus 19.19 says, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Okay, so in English, like, okay, the sound of the trumpet and there was thunder, but the Hebrew words are, 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 are pointing us towards something that we miss when we only understand the Bible in English. Now, let's just take a moment here and pause. We need to understand that the Bible wasn't written in English. At the time of the Exodus, at the time of the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, nobody spoke English. It's a language that came way, way after and we do our best to try and match the original language, but sometimes we can't always do it. This is one of those cases. Because the word that's used there for sound and for thunder is the same word. If you want to check it out, there's, you know, the Strong's numbers. You can go to Strong's number H6963. And the word that's used there for sound is the word kol. Kol is a sound. It also means a voice. And in Judaism, there's something called the bat kol. Now, I wrote about that in my first book, Understanding Jesus. You can go there and get a little more insight if you want. But let me give you the background to this idea of what a bat kol is. And this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia Online. The bat kol is a heavenly or a divine voice which proclaims God's will or judgment, His deeds and His commandments to individuals or to a number of persons, to rulers, communities, and even to whole nations. So this, this idea of a bat kol, this, this divine voice that can be heard when God wants to speak to us, it's recorded in some of that Jewish literature I told you about. And this comes from the Babylonian Talmud. And it records instances, check this out, of when the bat kol is likened to the chirping of a bird and even the cooing of a dove. From this Babylonian Talmud, we have a story of Rabbi Jose, and he's quoted as re he's relaying a story, and he says, I have heard the bat kol, which cooed like a dove. Now, hang on a second. I know we've been talking about Acts chapter 2, and we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Is there anywhere in the book of Luke where there, there's a voice that comes from heaven, and God is giving some kind of instruction, and there's something to do with the Holy Spirit? You bet there is. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And what a voice, a coal, came from heaven. 
doing what? Giving divine instruction. And this time he's saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I don't care where you are, but right now you better be saying, wow. You better be saying, wow. That's why no one reacted when they heard this cold, this sound from heaven that sounded like the cooing of a dove because they had read about it already in their Talmud. They knew that God had spoken to his people this way in the past. That's why it's so important. That's why it's critical, actually, that we as believers, as Christians, go back and understand the Hebraic or the Jewish background of our faith. Because as we do that, remember, we're the ones we're grafted into the roots of the tree of Israel. And if we're grafted into the right root, then and only then will we get the right fruit. Okay, so you've had your wows. Let's kind of recap real quick what happened at this very first Pentecost. So some of the elements leading up to and surrounding the first Pentecost, so the parting of the Red Sea when they got to the actual mountain itself, uh, we had a, a mighty wind, right, that came in and divided the Red Sea. You can find the references in the scripture. There's a wall of fire that protected the people from the Egyptians and, and their chariots. The sound waves from God's mouth were as thunder, as a mighty wind, as this coal that we heard about from heaven. The rabbis taught us that the people saw the words of God as a fiery substance. And people that were from all other parts of the world were all gathered in this place. And they all heard the message in their own native language. Now, you would think I was talking about Acts chapter 2, right? But we've been talking about the first Pentecost at Sinai. And now we're going to make the jump to Acts chapter 2, the one that we know about. And now when you read it and you know all this background, your mind's going, hang on, I I can't take this. Because Acts chapter 2 on its own is a beautiful passage. Don't get me wrong. But it becomes so much more powerful and meaningful when you understand the history that came before it. Let me read it for you and then we'll We'll break it down and look at the comparisons. It says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a coal, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then it says that there were Jews dwelling in in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Do you understand now why the writer puts it there, that there were people from every nation under heaven? Because it's the ripple effect from the first Pentecost back at Mount Sinai. And at this sound, the multitude came together, right? When they heard the rushing wind, they came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? You see, once this is set against the backdrop of that first Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 makes so much more sense. No wonder the men came running when they saw the fire and they heard the wind. It was an echo of something that had already happened. And so a lot of scholars will point to the events of Acts chapter 2 as the birth of the church. 
And so if the nation of Israel was born at the first Pentecost, then the church was born at this Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then we have this number again, 3,000 that creeps up. We heard about it back at Pentecost in Mount Sinai, and then we find it here again in Acts chapter 2. Verse 41 says that, So those who received his word were what? Baptized, and there was added that day about 3,000 souls. So at the first Pentecost at Sinai, we have 3,000 put to death. And now at the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we have 3,000 who are given life. We're going to talk about that a little bit as we, as we continue. Now, I'm the guy who asks questions. And if you know me, I, I love to ask questions. You know, when, when I teach on, on the Passover and the Eastern Gate, and the Bible says that all of Jerusalem was gathered at the gate. I'm like, why that gate? Why on that day? How do they know, right? I like to ask those questions. And now all of a sudden, there's 3,000 men just kind of hanging around Jerusalem. Where did all these men come from? Why were they in Jerusalem? And why they all speak different languages? They were Jews. Didn't they all speak Hebrew or some kind of Aramaic? We get the answer when we understand the commandments from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, 16, we find out why these men are here. This is what it says. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Booth, which is Tabernacle. So three times a year, God said, Jewish men from all over the then-known world had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So that's why they were there. That's why there was thousands of them. And that's why they all spoke different languages, because they came from all different parts of the world. And so they come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And so they come to the temple and they're having the service. And just imagine, as the priest or as the rabbi or as the men are talking amongst themselves afterwards, they're, they're relating the stories, remembering what these Jewish books, the Talmud and the Mishnah have said about the first Pentecost, that there was tongues of fire and people from all over the world, and they all heard the commandments in their language, and there was the sound from heaven, and there was wind, and all this is going on. They're having this conversation and as they come out of the temple, the acts, the events of Acts chapter 2 take place. No wonder they believed. No wonder they were so blown away. And no wonder they were convinced. They had been waiting for it for so long. And everything they had been waiting for was happening right in front of their eyes. I can't imagine what an exciting time that must have been for the people. So I've called this message today, you know, the power of Pentecost, and it could also be called the purpose of Pentecost. What is it about this feast? What is it about this day that still speaks to us today? I think part of it comes from something that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Okay, so we saw that happen. The power of the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they were able to be witnesses in Jerusalem. But then he said, in fact, all of Judea, all of Samaria, and then I want you to go to the ends of the earth and I want you to preach this gospel. I want you to tell people about me. But how could they go into every part of the world, into parts of the world where they didn't know the language and how could they speak to them? 
That's part of the purpose. That's part of the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives us the utterance to be able to speak in ways that we never could speak. Now, some of you who've been following my journey for the last little while, and if you haven't, now you're going to learn, that for the last year or so, I've been entrenched in ministry in Liberia, in West Africa. God has broken my heart for these precious people. I love Liberia. I love its people. I pray for them all the time. I raise as much money as I can to buy food and water and dig wells. Our hearts every day is, God, how can we help Liberia? Now, thankfully, Liberia is an English, predominantly English-speaking nation. In the cities like Monrovia and Painesville and Carysburg, where we are, English with an accent, but I can understand them. But often we'll go deep into the jungles and to visit these villages. And they have their own tribal languages. Now, this is what I believe the power of Pentecost can do. Could you imagine if I was to travel into those villages and they've never seen a white man, they may have never heard English, but then I open up my mouth and I begin to speak to them in their dialect and they hear the gospel. It'd be the same reaction as the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. They would believe because they would say, how is it that this man who doesn't know us speaks our language? Oh God, I pray that we would once in our lifetime experience the power of Pentecost in this way. And so the events of Acts chapter 2, they, they weren't a surprise. Now watch this. Not only did the disciples know what would happen, I'm going to say they knew when it would happen. Jesus told them. And if you keep in mind the Feast of Weeks, remember counting seven weeks, seven days, and then on the 50th day? Well, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for what? 40 days. So he's with them for 40 days, and he's, he's with them, and he's teaching, and he's with them. And then look at what he says at the end, at the end of verse 5. He says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit when? Not many days from now. In fact, 10 days from now, because if this is day 40, Nine more days will be the end of the seventh week on the 50th day. That's when the Holy Spirit would fall. The day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of a promise made by God thousands of years earlier. And this is what that promise is. We find part of it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 33. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, what, a new covenant okay, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Well, up until this point, that's what they were known for. They were known as the people who God brought out of Egypt. He said, in the future, that's not what you're going to be known for. You jump ahead and he says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after this time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see, God said that in the future, that his people would not be known as only the people who knew the commandments, but as people who actually lived them out. You see, this is what Pentecost does for us. It gives us the power to take the commandments from tablets of stone and to move them into our hearts, 
and into our minds. And it even goes a step further in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 and 20. It says that you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart, there it is again, and in your soul. And then he says, actually bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets or as boxes right between your eyeballs. Listen to that. God says, take my words. Don't just memorize them and know them, but actually write them. Bind them to your, to your hands, to your forearms, and stick them right in the center of your forehead. If, if God's laws were written on my forearms and there was a box in the middle of my forehead, I think I'm going to remember his laws. And today you might see images of Jewish people, of Orthodox religious people, with these items on themselves, and you say, what is that all about? Well, the first one is known as tefillin. And tefillin are these leather straps that they bind around their forearms. Why? Because the Bible says to bind his words to your arms, to your hands. And then you'll see other Jewish men with these, these leather boxes on their foreheads. And you're like, what in the world is that all about? It is a literal translation. It's a literal adaptation of what Deuteronomy said, that they shall be as frontlets, boxes right between your eyes. And at the end of Deuteronomy uh, 11, going into verse 20, he says, you shall write them, what? My laws on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And you might notice if you walk into a Jewish business or into a Jewish home, you see these all around Israel, these things called mezuzahs. And they have a, a piece of scroll in them that has that very commandment. And so God says, I want you to have all these. I want them to be on your arms. I want them to be on your forehead. I want them to be on your doorposts. Every time you pass in and out, you're going to remember. What's the meaning of all this? To mark your hands and your forehead because that's to cause your actions, it's to cause your thoughts to be solely focused on God and His commandments. It's a daily reminder so that all of our actions and thoughts would be focused on the Lord. In fact, it's the opposite, the exact opposite of the mark that the enemy comes to bring in Revelation 13, 16, that he wants to put a mark on their hands, on their foreheads to do and to think evil. But God says, no, I've called you to be different. I want you to take my laws and spiritually. Now the Jewish people take it a step further and they physically bind them to their forearms and foreheads. But God says that this is what we need to do spiritually, mentally, have them always at the forefront of our minds. See, God is looking for a people that will be marked with godly actions and thoughts. You can't just say, hey, I'll pray for you. Good luck, we'll see what happens. They have to be coupled together. Your thoughts and your actions have to be working together to bring forth this incredible message from Pentecost, that is, that Jesus is Lord. James really sums it up beautifully. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, God is looking for people who are willing to live out the law, live out the commandments, not just recite it from memory. It's good to commit to memory portions of Scripture, to encourage yourself when you're going through tough times. But it's not enough just to know them. We need to act on them. We need to live them out. We need to be His heart and His hands in a hurting world. So, what is the power or the purpose of Pentecost? 
It's to speak the language that is spoken and understood by all. Love coupled with action. Jesus confirms this in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another, the power of Pentecost makes it possible for us to go out and to love, to speak the language. If the Spirit empowers us to speak their actual language, it also empowers us to speak the the language of love to do as Jesus did in a hurting and a broken world, to love the unlovable, to, to be with those who are alone, those who are in prison, those who are hurting. That's the language of Pentecost, the language of love. So what do we take away from this message today? On the power of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, It's not about arguing over who's right and wrong and how we interpret the scripture or interpret that scripture. We look at what God already did at that first Pentecost at Sinai when he gave the law and he gave it in a way that everybody would be able to understand. And then we come to the New Testament Pentecost and the same thing. He gave us the law. He gave us the gospel in the way that we could understand. Let's take this gospel. Let's take this love of God and bring it to a broken and a hurting world in a way that they will understand as well. I want to conclude our time together by reciting a blessing over you. And it's known as the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26. And we get this from something that Jesus does in Luke 24, verse 50. The Bible says that he led them out as far as Bethany, and that he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. There's only one prayer, only one blessing in Judaism where you raise your hands, and that's the ironic blessing. So the final thing Jesus did was he raised his hands and he blessed them. So let me, on this day of Pentecost, bless you. And if you want, you can, if you're comfortable, raise your hands and receive this blessing from him. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. And may the Lord give you his peace in Jesus' name.